Blog Talk Radio. everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. It is Sunday, May 22nd, 2022. It is 7 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time here on the East Coast. And as always, I am here with my friend Bill Stegel. It would not be a GTP Keeper Radio episode without Bill with us. Bill, we're episode number 31, my friend. What do you think about that? 31, buddy, we're catching up to our boys, Marilia Python Radio. They're on 595, so we're catching up. <laughs> we are, yes, we are. We, I mean, we're, we, we've already set a record. This is our second show this year. I know. I did the math, and I think we can easily pull off four shows this year. Easily. 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 Yeah. That's right. And they're doing this. and they're doing four they're doing four shows a week I think now. Right, they're doing Seems everything. Like they're like they're, yeah, they're like <laughs> they're also commentators on conservative talk radio as well. <laughs> I see. I didn't know that. <laughs> I can't picture right. Rowan yeah. doing that, yeah. but <laughs> he, he represents the other side. Things in Maryland are hot. <laughs> he so, does, Bill. We. Two weeks ago, uh, it was winter, um, and, you know, I have, I have some snakes I want to ship out. I'm, you know, patiently waiting to ship out snakes. Um, it looks like spring is coming, and I start making plans, and then all of a sudden, uh, winter returns. And uh, now, two weeks later, we are in the middle of summer. It is, today, it was 92 degrees, very humid, afternoon thunderstorms. Uh, typical, you know, late June, July weather for us that we're having right now in May. Of course, this week it'll go back to normal. We're hoping, but yeah. So it's been a been a pretty interesting two weeks. So in Maryland, so so it went from too cold to ship to too hot to ship in the matter of a week. Yeah, yeah, I would say that. I mean, it's it's okay to ship, I think, but it's also one of those things where now I'm looking at is it too hot to ship. You know, are the folks that um, <laughs> I'm shipping are you know they they able to get to these animals in a you know in, in the in the correct time? Uh, do we have to worry about you know the other opposite end well, of the spectrum? So yeah, so it's it's all over the place and makes it challenging. The, these these days, I just count on two day shipping. So like uh, temperature wise and schedule wise. I will just assume that it's going to miss its first day, plan on the second day, um, and then I'm not disappointed and 
you know, there's no real surprises. So if temps don't look good for two days or I'm not going to ship on a Thursday for a Friday, um, right. you know, it's just signs of the time. Yes, but having is. said that, yes, I haven't had is. any major, major, I haven't had any major shipping catastrophes. So, so that's good. That That's always a good thing. And I will, I, I'm going to say, I agree. I'm not going to put that out to the world. What are you waiting to ship out? What what animals? Uh, I've got uh, a, a chondro that's going out, and I've got some diamond pythons that are going out. Yeah, anybody we know? Um, they going to people we a know? Chondro guy. Uh, I don't know if you know Dan DeLuca. <laughs> I, I know Dan very, him. very well. Yes, yep, I do. He's been here an animal. to my place a time or two. He's been here, and he's got several of my uh, animals in his collection and is due, in fact, to receive three more here uh, in the fall. So, yes, I know Perfect. Dan well. That's where the chondro is going, and the diamond pythons are just uh, nobody that I recognize from the chondro world, at least. Um, I've got a got pair you. going out in the solo mail, so. Yep. yep. Nice. So those, those are going out, which, which I kind of like because, you know, you want to move out some animals when you hatch out those babies. You, you need to have that space and that time to take care of those babies and get them established. Yeah, for sure. It's just the natural cycle of things, and it's uh, it's it's good. I'm, I'm kind of the point where I don't have a lot of seller's remorse these days anymore. Um I mean, I, the worst case that can happen is you ship an animal out and it turns out to be awesome. You know, that's, and that's a no, that's a no lose situation for me. It's a no lose situation for the buyer. So I I just don't have a lot of seller's remorse. It's, you know, never easy to put, you know, what you've worked so hard for, for so long in a box and drop it off at FedEx. But, you know, it's just, it is what it is. It's a part of what we do. And speaking of babies, Bill, you uh, look like you're going to have your hands full over there with uh, establishing quite a large number of baby green tree pythons. Super blessed this year. I ended up with I ended up with 30 viable babies, um, which is it. It could have been as many as 50. But I probably, for good reason, ended up losing a large clutch uh, incubation, clutch number three. It was just one of those clutches that I didn't think it was doomed from the get-go. I thought I'd get some babies out of it, but it had. It was a first-time female, big female, laid a, a lot of eggs and a lot of slugs. and But a lot of the eggs were small and poorly veined, and it just was a – it was just – a month or five weeks of agony, which is slowly them dying, not producing veins. And so anyway, you know, that's, that was the bad part of the year, but the good part of the year is that I got just 30 beautiful babies. The, uh, the first two clutches were super easy to transition. They've all had at least two to four meals now. And uh, the third clutch, which was my most anticipated pairing, was the Jaeger to cyanosis babies, and I had nine eggs, 
nine healthy animals uh, emerged, and they look unbelievable. I mean, I I haven't been this excited about a green tree clutch since the sickness babies. Um, so hopefully they'll establish as easily as the first couple of clutches, and man, I'll just it'll be the end to just a great season. That's awesome. That that that's a that's a yeah, good number you, of babies. Yeah, it's a real good number, and especially the fact that the the first twenty one have established easily. Even if I got to put some effort in the the last nine, it won't be it won't be that it won't be that bad. But they all look good. They're already tongue flicking. They haven't had their first shed yet, but I've got a good feeling that they'll that they'll do pretty good. That's great. That's great. So you're it's keeping them all back for a couple of years? Well, the first two clutches, most of those, to be honest, are already pre-sold. That was uh, Jaeger to Biscuit and uh, uh, Bill's 2017-07 to uh, Bushmaster uh, Red Manicori Female. And most of those are going to are going to take a trip. Babies. Okay. All right. Yeah, Very they uh, they all look. You know, I mean, I'm such a homer. You know, I, I'm I, I I love I love everything I produce. I think it all looks awesome. Um. But this year, God, the Jaeger biscuit babies came out absolutely amazing. This is the third third time that they've paired and produced babies. And um, the Bills to Manicori, this is the first time that they've produced all red clutch. They look really good. Um, but the Cyanosis babies, <clears throat> these are the babies that you see that, like, they're not red, right? These, these things are brown. And they have right. very limited patterning patterning and the patterning that they do have isn't white or yellow it's um it's orange you know so yeah. you know like that look of the, the orange on the brown and you just go man they, if there's not some home runs out of this clutch then you know i'm very pessimistic but i'll be shocked if there's not some home runs out of this clutch yeah that, that those are my favorite neos with those so, orange the orange pattern man the orange on top of that brown background color is just it's hard to beat. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, I know you've got some babies over there, too. Yeah, yeah. Three uh, three clutches. Two of them were, were small. Um, one clutch we talked about the last time we did the show. The second clutch was uh, female laid 12 eggs. Only four of them were fertile. Four of them went the distance. Um, they all hatched. Uh, they're all doing well. And then my final clutch, it was a clutch of 14 or 15 eggs, 13 hatched. Um, and, they're, you know, they're all doing pretty well. They, they, the last clutch, they just went through their shed like two or three days ago, just had their first shed. And of that clutch, um, two, three, four, five, six of them have, have eaten already. So, so yep, nice. fingers so crossed. It looks like, uh, looks like what? How many babies? Uh, twenty-two. Nice, very, very manageable if if everybody behaves. Yes. Correct. 
if everyone behaves. So far, a lot of good behavior. Um, and so I'll probably, my plan is um, the, every clutch had some yellow neonates. The uh, smaller clutches each had one. The larger clutch had three or four. So uh, those will be the first that I let go. I'll, I probably will sit on the the red babies for a little while, maybe next spring if, if I make any of those available. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the plan. So I'll, I'll sell most of the yellows and probably this fall and hold on to the reds and see what, what becomes of those and make decisions based on that. I can't remember. Are these repeat pairings or uh, first? Uh, the the first pairing is uh, – this is the third pairing for this. Uh, first, The first clutch this year, it's the third time pairing. This is the one where the, the animal is trying to figure out if that animal is going to be just a regular green tree python or if it's going to be a high yellow animal. It's still kind of, well, it's still kind of sitting there not doing much of anything. Yeah, well, not sure if, you know, trying to figure that out, whether it could be hypo or not. No, no. Um, okay. So, yep, the, uh, some, yeah, babies from that one. And then the second one is a, a proven female. Um, I produced her in 2015, and she has some calico and uh, Bushmaster new blue blood. Um, I, yeah, and then I, I paired her back to a Bushmaster new blue male. Uh, that's when I had uh, 12 eggs, only four were fertile. Um, and then the third clutch is another calico across animal to a uh, Bushmaster uh, Wilmena type, and it just has, you know, good-looking snake, so I kept it, obviously, um, and this yeah. is that female's second clutch, and the male I paired with her has uh, everything. He he has uh, everything, on the, everything on the Trooper Walsh, Greg Maxwell side that you could want, and then, okay. um, and then <laughs> Calico uh, Blue. Calico, you know, all that stuff. Uh, calico animals, uh, the founder blue line animals, and then on the male side of the of the sire of the clutch uh, is John Lecky slash Rob Warwell stuff. Oh, wow. So it's kind of a, going, it's kind, it's going kind going of a fusion. Back, real bad. Yeah. yeah, so it's kind of a fusion of some, of some bloodlines there, which uh, I think has a, some potential for some really nice-looking animals as adults, I'm hoping. That's why I chose it. And actually, I still got, I have another pair going on. Um, I have a female who uh, she produced in 2019, and um, she produced a clutch. In I, I paired her in 2018. She laid in 2019, but she didn't lay till very late. Um, so this year I decided I was going to wait till march to start pairing her so i've because yeah. every other year she hasn't done anything that i've tried to pair her so i waited until march they've been together um i'm seeing a lot of locks um so just waiting to see if things progress with, with that female and that female actually is the nice. uh she's a she has a biak from rico and john irby and that biak uh, I crossed her to a male that has Versace blood. The male is Sugar Ray. Sugar Ray. So uh, the female is one of my favorite animals in my collection. I just would like to get some animals from her. And the male is the the male with the the 
the Lecky, Rowell on one side and Tripper Wash, Calico, Founder Blue Line Animals on the other. Everybody red babies from those pairings, those two pairings? Um, no, I had, every pairing I had had, uh, the first two pairings, uh, 25% yellow neo, neonates. The second pairing, it was about, uh, let me see, let me count them real quick. One, two, three, four. Four out of the 14 or 13 were yellow in the, in the third pairing. Okay, great. Fantastic odds. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yep. How's I'll take that, it. Uh, how, how's, that, how's, how's that sickness male offspring doing out there? Oh, he, he's doing well. Um, I think I have a female picked out for him for this fall. And uh, fingers oh, nice. crossed that w- when, w- when I pair him that he's, he's ready. I mean, he seems he ready. Yeah. Of, I, I think he is. He seems the size. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, it's hard to tell. Sometimes the males decide they, they need yeah, another year sure. or two before they're really. But we're gonna. I'm gonna try sure. them this fall. I've got two. I'm gonna try them with. I'll the, try as well. Okay. Try them with what? Yeah. Well, I. What, what are you gonna remember try? Remember, I with? sent you the animal. So you you picked up an animal for me from 2017 at one of the Carpet Fest auctions. That was Bushmaster New Blue. Yes. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, so I have I have uh uh two females left from that pairing here that I you know, I held back. And so the one female I want to try him with I think it's gonna be I think it could be a really if it works out, it could be a very good outcome. Fingers crossed, my brother. Fingers crossed. That's it. Always. Well, we were talking to Tommy before the show, and we told him, "Hey, man, people want to hear—they want to hear Tommy talking, not us." So I think it's that we time. We did. All right. So, <laughs> hey, guys. Hey, Tom. And so it's Thomas. We have Thomas Budway in the in the uh, heading of the show, but you also go. You are comfortable with us calling you Tommy, so we will we'll, we're yeah. going to use Tommy. So, Tommy, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Thank you, thank you. It's good to be here. Look good, forward to good. chatting with you, gentlemen. Tommy, awesome. Tommy, yep. Wow, I get the applause and everything, huh? Yeah, <laughs> we've got a large studio audience tonight. What can I say? Welcome to the show. <laughs> How are you, Tommy? Thank you, thank you. I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Just. uh had a good weekend. Um, just getting ready for work tomorrow, and uh, that's about it. Getting ready to talk about some Correct green me trees, if, which we we love doing. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is actually your second podcast now. I think I heard you on Justin's. Is that right? That is correct. You, you are correct. Yes, I'm uh, pretty much a rookie doing this, but uh, I'm looking <laughs> no, forward to you, it. No, you. <laughs> No, you, uh, you, you know, you, you got your experience on Justin's show. What, was that? I can't remember. Was that uh, Snakes and Stogie, or is that what, what podcast were you on? No, that was a her podcast. Uh, Prophetic culture, right now. <laughs> yeah, <thank you. laughs> I know the one you're talking yeah, about. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, 
yeah, that's 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 a that's a good show. Yeah, I made it through most of most most of that show. You did a good job on it. Yeah, Justin's a yeah, he's a good dude. And uh yeah, James yeah, and Andy, great. James Altel and Andy Middleton were on it, so it's always interesting when James is on uh, talking Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well you're so low <laughs> my friend. Uh oh. You're getting you're making me nervous. <laughs> All right, though. Well, let's <laughs> we've always got we've always got Buddy to fall back on, so when we're there in you all right, so let's get on. Let's get on with this thing, Tommy. Um, so, why don't you tell our listeners how, how, and when were you introduced to Green Trees? What, what's the backstory there? So, I guess the backstory is, I mean, I'm sure like a lot of people that they're into reptiles. I grew up loving, you know, reptile, local reptiles that were in the area. We had, I had a, a park by my house that had some streams running through it. So we'd always go down and look for salamanders, turtles, frogs, stuff like that. Um, so I always loved reptiles. And um, I guess back in my 20s, I it was just a keeper of everything pretty much. I had you know, poison dart frogs. I had snakes. I had you know, chameleons, uh, monitor lizards, uh, you name it. And then um, I guess I got out of it from – you know, for probably about 15, 20 years. And then uh, back in 2000, what was it, probably 2011, you know, I saw a picture of a green tree that piqued my interest. I mean, these things are, the arboreal species always, was always attracted the, to the arboreal species, you know, green trees in particular, and uh, decided to get back in it. And um, actually was going to, it was between green trees and emerald tree boas, so or Amazon basin. Ah. I'm sorry, and ultimately decided to get into green trees. Um, and yeah, this was back in yeah, 2000, 2011. You know, I did some research. I probably researched for about six months before I purchased um, my first one. I purchased, Shocking. I purchased Shocking. two from yeah John, yeah yeah John Lucky, um, his yeah. black pearl line and one of his jade lines. Uh, and then I got those and immediately wanted to get more, <laughs> you know, you can, the bug hit you. And, uh, <laughs> I, um, I got three more from Jason Stevens. Uh, oh, one wow. Of them okay. Was actually, a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of them was a Bushmaster, um, Cyclops. Um, and the other one was, uh, Alabama. I forget what the, what the other, yeah, it was Alabama something or another. And um, two from that clutch, actually. One a yellow Neo and a, one a red Neo. And so that was the... So when you, got into it, when, you got in, when you got into it, Tommy, you were acquiring all Neos at this point, or did you get some sub-adults, adults? What did you get? No, they, yeah, they were all... They were sub-adults. So the one from Lucky was, I think it was like a year and a half old, and the fe- that was a male, the, the black pearl line. And the female... Was she was I think two and a half. Yeah, she was two and a half. And then the ones from okay, Jason yeah. Stevens. Yeah, same thing. About a year and a half. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't get neos right off the bat. Um, you know, from all the okay. research that I I did, I didn't want to. You know, because I I mean I really haven't kept an arboreal species, and so I just don't want to you know chance it with a neo. 
And did that work out well for you? Those animals all transitioned well, you know, sub-adults? They did, yeah. They transitioned very well. Yeah. So at the time, I was living in Arizona. Um, oh, yeah, I, I remember you saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so, they, so yeah, you they live in transition, Pittsburgh. Transition. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just, just going to say, yeah, I was just going to, you know, let the, I was going to ask you, to, well, I know, but for you to inform the viewers, you live on the East Coast. Yes. Pennsylvania. Yep. And, um, that's correct. And so, like your your early mentors, Jason Stevens and John, or did you look to other people in the community, yeah, or how, how did you how did you get your experience? Yeah, Jason Stevens and, and John for sure um, in, in the early years, and then throughout the years, um, you know I purchased more snakes um, from Rich Col- a couple from Rich Culver, a couple from James, you know some from one from Christian Stewart, and um, mm, wow, yeah. So I mean I I was lucky to you know to have, you know, a good group of people to lean on for, you know, for in- information and, you know, help with, you know, getting started breeding and things like that. You know, um, it seems to be a very constant theme when we have guests on the show and you ask them about their early beginnings. You know, we never hear anybody saying, uh, I picked up four green trees off Craigslist and, you know, uh, imported two from underground reptiles yeah you you (laughs) never hear that you know right what what you hear is exactly you know what you're echoing is is that you know you've got you you did it right you took your time you got good quality animals from good people and gosh what do you know you know a decade later you've been successful yeah yeah very true yeah yeah and i mean i I did it right like i said i researched a lot and um I had my cages set up well in advance before I, I, I got the, my first shipment from John and, you know, made sure everything was, the temperatures and humidity were, you know, perfect. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, we're going to, we're going to get into I mean, that here in a few minutes, obviously. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, you just you, on, on these Facebook groups and Instagram, you, I mean, you see horror stories about, you know, people having, you know, just purchase, purchasing these things on a whim, and you know, you know, what am I? What, why is my snake not eating this and that? So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's why you got to make sure you, you do it right. It's why Stephen Saltzman has been so popular with his memes. You know, I mean, the the, <laughs> the, the basic the basic it's thrown up there every day is just, you know, it's not it's too good to be true. Yeah, you got to love Stephen's okay. memes. They're, they keep you entertained. <laughs> they are. They do almost every day. But, yeah, I mean, speaking of doing it right, I mean, Stephen, he he's done it right. I mean, he's he's purchased all pretty much all neos and you know young, you know young adults, and um, he hasn't you know he hasn't tried to buy adults and start breeding right away. So um, that's that's the right well, way to do it. Stephen figured out real. The, you gleam a lot of knowledge about green trees is is that you you know you administer you, you're an admin of the largest green tree Facebook group there is. By doing that, 
you will learn a tremendous amount. It's it's like when Buddy asked me to be the co-host of GT Keeper Radio, I I think at the mm-hmm. time I owned one or two Condros and was a complete noob. And you know I uh, I feel like a lot of the success that I've had is because I've just been on these shows listening to people that had a whole hell of a lot more success and experience than I did. So yeah, Steven Steven's doing it right. For sure. Hey, Tommy, why don't you give us, I know Buddy has some husbandry questions that we want to get down, uh, but why don't you give us an overview of, of your collection right now? Like, what do you got? Uh, Neo, sub-adults, adults? Sure, yeah. Um, so mainly I, I focus on Blue Line, Trooper Walsh Blue Line. So everything that I have has some type of Blue Line lineage in it. Um, right now I have... Neos, 13 Neos from two clutches um, just in the past couple months. One was hatched in March, one was hatched in April. Um, nice. Adults, I have, yeah, sub-adults, I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, probably eight. You know, four from my clutch okay. in 2020 that I held back, and um, three from a clutch that Christian Stewart hatched um, with, so my, I have a female down at Christian's at the barn, that uh, a signal herp female, and uh, on a breeding loan, and he he hatched out a, a clutch with his Serac male. So I held back yes, three beautiful. from those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're turning out incredible. Oh my gosh, I couldn't be more pleased. Yeah, I've I've, how, how, I've seen some pictures. Clutch. They're they're amaz- They're amazing. Yeah. So they're, okay. they're sub-adults and adults, I, let's see, one, two, three, uh, probably about 10 adults, something like that. So, I mean, I don't have a huge wow. collection. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, fairly I mean, small. It's, a, it, it, it's yeah. a sizable collection for sure, especially mm-hmm. you produce, you know, a couple clutches of babies every year, and that's enough to keep you busy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I usually keep half. Maybe about four or five from, you know, a clutch that I'll, I'll hatch out and sell the rest. But I like to keep at least four or five if I can. Um, this year, the clutch that I hatched out in March was very small. She laid 10 fertile eggs and, and three slugs. Out of the 10 eggs, only six hatched. Um, yeah. So I'll keep, yeah, I'll keep three or four from that clutch and, and sell a couple. Or actually, they're already sold, but. Um, and then the, what, the, what, what the about your, from Crit. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, well, what, what about your adult? You've got some crazy adults over there too. Thank Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Are you breaking up a little bit? Is it me or is it buddy? Is he breaking up? Bill, you are breaking up just a little bit. Okay. Okay. I'll try to um, uh, mess with my internet. I'm blaming so it on adult... the studio equipment that Eric and Ellen give us. <laughs> <laughs> Second hand. <laughs> Third hand. Uh, the adult. <laughs> yeah, so the adults that I have, um, a couple were from James Alto. I have this really cool blue female that is um, that she's produced two clutches for me. Um, she is an Andrew and Men blue line to his, I don't, I don't know if you guys are familiar with his crazy-looking blue manicure female that 
that he has that actually yes. turns like black and purple. Yeah. So I have a female from that, and she yeah, she's incredible. It's pretty much all blue, and she produced um, a clutch in 2020, and and another one this year. So so she is probably a, my, one of my cornerstone animals. Um, I have another one from James, it's Sky to- Sky Topaz Bioc. Um I actually bred him to her. That was the clutch that she, that she had in 2020. So they're they're all they're about a year and a half right now, and they're all turning. I, I mean, I was expecting to get you know, a lot of snakes with blue in them, but they're, it's pretty crazy because they're all really calico-y looking animals, a lot of black and green and yellows. Um, so I'm, I'm, I imagine it's from the, the Bioc and the Bioc side of it in the, the Sky Topaz. So, cause this Sky Topaz male was, you know, it had a lot of, a lot of black flecking on it. Um, yeah, one in particular is I'm very anxious to see how it turns out. It's, it, I sold it to a guy named a kid named uh, Dan McMillan. He's out in Washington, and like right now, it, it kind of looks like Prince turning. It's like orange and black and green and a little bit of blue. So it's going to be very interesting to see how how that one turns out. Um, yeah, it's going to be fun. What other adults? So I have some. I have one from Colin Golly from his Andrew Men. It was Andrew Men to uh, uh, cross to a, a wrist collar, Dream Baby, Mighty Blue. Uh, I have one of those. So, so I have her paired up right now, actually. She's paired up with the Sky Topaz Bioc that I have. And we had, I mean, they've been locking up. I, so I've, pa- I've paired them up since October, off and on. Um, and, I mean, they locked a bunch Back in October, they you know took a little break in the, in the, probably December, January, and the, and they're they're still walking up now. So we'll see if that one progresses. Yeah. Yeah. So you're uh, you're, doing, you you're doing spring pairings as well. Yeah, it's continuation continuation of the fall. So I have her paired up to the Sky Topaz Bialk, and I have um, a Serac Lagatha. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that clutch that Christian produced with um so Serac is Christian's uh Crazy Lucy to James Optol's um Magartha, which is I think it's a Keith it's a Keith Thompson blue and black line. Uh and she's pretty much I mean she she's probably super blue. I mean she did not have a green green phase and she's she don't have a green scale on her now. So I have her paired up to Wow uh, yeah, I have her paired up to a male that I produced from a Dream Baby Mighty Blue Rich Culver male, and um, to a Dale had a Dale Jewel female that has uh, Greg Maxwell Might Face on one side and Tinley on the other. Uh, you guys familiar with Tin, Tinley? Remember that? Yaya. Oh yeah. 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 David. David. So Newman. I have. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so Dale Jewell yep. owned her originally, and I guess he sold her, sold her to David Newman. Ah, and correct. Yeah, she produced some pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she produced some really, really good stuff. I had two clutches with her, um, so I call him Galaxy because when he was changing, he was pretty much black and blue and gray and. I posted a picture one time on Facebook, and this girl commented that you know, it looks like a galaxy. So I just oh, call it galaxy. Thanks. 
Nice. But he's, I mean, he's borderline super blue too. He did not have a green, green face, and he's pretty much all blue right now. So, um, so I have that that pairing. They're still same thing. I paired, I started pairing them up in October. They locked up a bunch in October, November, December. You know, a couple months. They took a couple months off, and um, they locked up again in March and April. So. But she's she's not developing, so we'll we'll see how it goes. Uh, what Tommy, you got to post more on social media. You got to post more on social media, man. I got to see <laughs> more pictures of stuff. I hear you. <laughs> I'll, I'll try, though. I'll try. I'm ruling, man. I'm watering. Well, first of all, I take horrible <laughs> pictures. Yeah. And, uh, James and James Otho and I became really good friends over the years, and. He he makes fun of me for the pictures that I I send him, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I'll try to do better. <laughs> so yeah, they're they're the two remaining pairings that I have this year. So the one the Very babies good. that I had from yeah, yeah another I mean the clutch that so there's a. My signal herp female that Christian has, he bred her to velvet. I don't know if you guys are familiar with velvet. He's a October times um, 71%. Um, I mean, velvet's pretty much yellow. He, I mean, it's a great-looking snake. It's all yellow and black. And um, So he paired up her up to my signal herp female. Um, and we he had we hatched out, what, 14, 14 EOs? So I got wow. seven, he got seven. But, I mean, these, these Neos are crazy looking. They're all black with very, very re- reduced pattern on the neck. Some, most of them. Um, some of them have really cool patterns. But, yeah, I'm excited for to see how these ones turn out, too. How how old are they now, Tommy, the, this clutch? They were hatched, the babies? I think it was, yeah, yeah, they were hatched um, April, I think it was 14th or something like that. So they're... um. Oh, they're wow. all on their really good, yeah, very easy to get started. So they're all on their, like, third and fourth meals. Nice. Except, nice. Yeah, except obviously, except the, the nicest one that it has not eaten yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know how that goes, right? Of course. Of course. <laughs> but, I mean, they're yep, only a month. Always how it goes. Yeah, month, month and a couple of months. Yep. Oh. And you can tell it's going to be one of those trouble feeders because it's, it's not striking and it's, runs and you know it's one of the runners so oh no runners yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to try and get that one to eat well we'll uh we'll talk about uh establishing babies here uh, a little bit later in in the show but yeah i definitely want to hear how you're handling or how you plan on handling that one yeah for sure yeah Besides, yeah. Besides cursing a lot, I, I don't, I don't know if I have a, <laughs> a plan for that one. <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right, yeah, are we ready to talk a little bit of husbandry? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, sure. No, I was just saying. No, go I'm ahead. Trying to figure out what else I have. I have. Um. What else do I have? It's interesting here. I, oh, I was, what is it from, I bought this female from, so the first clutch that Christian produced with my signal, her female was, um, he bred her to Jake, 
I don't know if you guys are familiar with Jake. Um, I did. Yeah, I know Jake. He, yeah, he's bred with yeah. watermelon, right? Yeah, he bred with watermelon. Yeah, so Jake's a blue deuce. Um, was blue deuce to the Danny brought a blue female. Um, so that first clutch, he I think he had like six eggs, and but only two hatched, and one died a couple weeks after it hatched. So being the female is mine and Christian being the good guy that he is, I got to keep the Neo. I actually sold it to a girl um, in Georgia. And I don't know if you guys remember her posting. I mean, she called it spicy noodle. It had a really cool mm. uh, color change. It's pretty much blue and black and, you know, gray and all that stuff. Um, so she ended up, she reached out to me a couple of years ago and asked if I wanted to buy it back. I was like, hell yeah, I'll buy it back. Yeah. I ended up buying it back. It? I, yeah. Yeah. I bought it back. Yes. And it's, um, it actually produced the, the clutch this year with, um, the James Optal female, the Andrew men, um, blue men Aquarius. So awesome. Yeah. I was happy to get it back. But, yeah, I purchased a female that she had. It was from, was it Todd Wetzel? Do you guys remember that name? I know that name, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's a pretty cool cool female, and I bought it basically because it was a female. Um, So I never have enough females. And um, it was, I forget, it was Carolina Blue, Mr. Blue Carolina. It had a Bioc in it, so... That's another interesting female that I'll I'll probably breed next year. That's a 2017, so I'll probably pair her up to the spicy noodle next year. We'll see how that goes. But uh, other than that, yeah, that's my collection. Yeah, got some great stuff, man. Thanks, man. And you you mentioned some names yeah. I haven't heard in a long time: Colin Gully, Dale Jewell. Um, you're talking yeah, yeah. what a decade, a decade or so since you know. I'm not even sure. I know Dale is no longer doing chondros. But I know I'm not even sure whether Colin is or not. But yeah, some some no, yeah, a little so. bit of chondro history there, right? Right, right. yeah. Sure. So we'll, let's talk a little bit of husbandry. So I'm really, what really has piqued my interest, Tommy, is that you started in Arizona, and now you're now you're <laughs> on the East Coast. You're in Pen- you're in Pennsylvania. So kind of share with us, if you would, um, any differences in husbandry that you had in Arizona that you didn't continue or had to start when you moved to the East Coast. So I actually only had them. So I bought everything. So there's five original snakes I bought. So I, have, I received them in March of 2012, and I actually moved to Pittsburgh in the fall of 2012. So they weren't in Arizona that long. Um, but I really didn't change the, the husbandry at all. Um, basically, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I didn't. Well, actually, at that time, I did spray. So I'd spray, you know, a few times a week, um, and continued continued to do that in Pittsburgh. I actually had one of those those misters from. Pro products. I don't know if you guys remember those, but so I'd have a, I'd have the misters come on, you know, every day, you know, a minute, uh, and I continue because it's so dry in Arizona. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, very dry in Arizona. Right. But I continue right. to do that in Pittsburgh, so. Uh, well, right, we can I add remember, you. Uh, we can add you to... oh, go ahead. We can add. Well, we can add you to the list of uh, sprayers. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 seemed, I... it seemed like, you know, for so long, or maybe it still is, that some people have this taboo about spraying green trees or spray, spraying their enclosures. And I, I just think it's so silly, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't like the mister. I mean, it seems like the mister, I had only used that probably for a year or so. And um, I just don't like the idea of using a mister because it seems like it, it's just very easy to harbor bacteria unless you're cleaning it, you know, I don't know, every month or uh, every few weeks. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. Yeah. So you're back to hand, yeah, so, hand misting when when you do mist. Yeah, but I got, I mean I got away from misting for for a while. Um, I don't I don't yeah. miss now. Just just when they just when they go and shed. Yeah. Um, and maybe once in a while I'll, I'll miss, but yeah, I don't I don't miss religiously. Um, yeah, I, don't, I just don't think they they need it. But I don't think there's anything wrong with misting if your airflow is proper in your, in, in your enclosures. It's just when you're, you're yeah, misting we, a lot and there's no airflow, it's just, I mean, you just harbor bacteria. Yeah, we talk about it a lot on, on this show. You know, mist, hydration, humidity. You know, we could do the entire two hours, you know, just based on that. <laughs> You know, I'm not sure. Yes, we could. Misters? Are you guys misters or not misters? I am. Like how often? Not, not every day. Not every day. Well, certainly when they're in their shed cycle, I miss them every day yeah. or almost every day. Um, but I'm yeah. either misting or saturating substrate almost every day. If, if they've mm-hmm. just shed, then I'll, I'll give them a few days where I don't, I don't increase the humidity in their in their cages. But other than that, mm-hmm. I'm doing something about humidity, probably five out of the seven days. You know, I'm either wetting substrate yeah. or missing the cage or missing the animal. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're in Dallas, right? Yeah, I'm in Dallas. It's, it's dry as hell oh. here. Yeah. And I run, I, I run, uh, city. say that again. Go ahead. I actually lived in Oklahoma City what? for a year back in oh, I didn't know that. 2000, or, yeah, 99, 2000, which is, but, yeah. yeah, I mean, well, uh, you know, I run, I run uh, humidifiers in my, in my facility and the ambient humidities, you know, on a mm-hmm. good day, it's 50% in there. Yeah. So I just, you know, I, 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 again, we've talked about it many times. I spray and I saturate and I boost humidity. Just enough to have good sheds. Yeah. You know, that's my goal. Good, I mean, shed, I, I, good shed cycle. Yeah. yeah. I very rarely have a snake with a, a bad shed. And I, like I said, I don't miss just just when they're pretty much going in this or a couple of days before the shedding. So, um, yeah. But I do have large water bulls in all of my enclosures. So, what's yeah. Makes, you know, yep, that helps. Um, 
But it's, so yeah, as far as I was shoot, a habitual. Uh, just to go back to the point of missing, I was a habitual mister for years. Like it was, you know, wake up, go miss Condros. Um, before you go to bed, you miss them, and uh, and I stopped. I stopped years ago, um, and I just do the when the snakes are in shed. I just kind of splash some water onto the substrate. Um, but back to the point mm-hmm. about living in Arizona. One of these, one of the very interesting, intriguing conversations I remember on the MVF was uh, Greg Schroeder, the person who started the MVF, mm-hmm. lived lived in Arizona. I don't know if you knew this or not. Um, yeah, and it was actually a discussion about um, Terry Phillip had just did the interview on Morelia Python Radio where he was saying he keeps everything at 80 degrees, he doesn't miss snakes. And, and, and that conversation segued over into the Morelia Viridis Forum. And Terry kind of said, you know, I don't think um, – the, the conversation kind of shifted back and forth a bit, um, and, but it was mostly about humidity – and um, Greg Schroeder asked a really pointed question, and it was really interesting, Terry's response, which was, um, uh, do, uh, do you think, Terry, that there's an environment where green tree, green tree pythons aren't kept humid enough? And so Terry thought about it, and he was like, yeah, I guess so. I guess maybe if I lived in, you know, a, a, a desert, a de, you know, an area with low humidity, like, you know, you know, Utah or Arizona, Southern California, parts of Texas, then maybe my bias would be, yes, you probably should be uh, missing your chondros to – you know, make sure that they stay hydrated and those type of things. So it's kind of that's why I was curious with you, Tommy, having been in Arizona and then coming to the East Coast, where it's naturally a higher humidity environment, um, where we, you know, it sounds like you don't have to supplement. You you supplement not as much as most, like maybe Bill doesn't be in in, in Dallas. I was just kind of mm-hmm. figure out your, what your experience was. Um, you know, Bill and I have talked about this just before. Is that you know I can tell you how I do things. And that that works really mm-hmm. well for me on the, on the East Coast um, in in being in a basement um, that is naturally more humid than other areas of the house, whereas opposed to someone who, you know, is is living in California and they have their collection in their attic, how things are different. So you have <laughs> to, you know, you have to you have to take that. You have to kind of listen to what everyone is saying and then figure out what really does work best for you. I think we often get caught into this, um, and I, I am guilty of this, of this as well, is we want a cookie cutter, everything to be kind of cookie cutter, where, you know, oh, this is what's working best for Tommy, so I'm going to do it for me, and it's going to work best for mm-hmm. me, or this is what works best, you know, for me, so Tommy, you should emulate what I'm doing, which isn't really the the, the case. Um and I think you guys would most likely agree that you do have to kind of figure out, what, besides the basics, what works best for your collection in order to keep everybody happy and thriving and, and healthy. Definitely, yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, um, you just got to, I mean, 
basically just read the animal. I mean, if you're you're having good shed, you're having bad sheds, obviously something's wrong with your your um your husbandry. But um yeah, other than that, it's just there there is no one way to keep these these animals for the reasons that you just you know described. So. Okay, Tommy, Tommy um, so let's talk. Yeah, go. The, the, how, so how do you house your chondros? Are you a, everybody from adults down to neonates are in tubs? Are you a, move them to an enclosure as fast as possible? Where do you fall in that spectrum? So I keep, I keep my neos in, you know, shoebox tubs um, for the first year and a half. Um, and then they, they graduate to a bigger size tub, probably until they're about two and a half. Um, and then from you know after two and a half, I, I move them to an adult enclosure. So all, all my enclosures are either two by two by two or two by three by two. So I keep the females in two by three by twos and um, the males in, in cubes, two two by two by twos. Um, and it's a, it's a hodgepodge of just enclosures that I made over the years or, you know, purchased. I have a couple from the PVC enclosures, cubes. Um, I have actually the first enclosures. I built the first enclosures that I, um, with my first five green trees and I built them out of acrylic. So it was back when you remember Greg, Greg Stevens whole enclosure set up with the acrylic and, um, the rain, I guess they had a rain chamber or whatever it is, and it drained. Right. I didn't do yes, that. Yes, I do remember those. I, yeah, I yeah, did build them out of black acrylic. Yeah. Cool. So I built those out of black acrylic. Um, the next set of cages I built were, were out of PVC, um, you know, three-quarter inch PVC, expanded PVC. And then, like I said, I bought a couple from PVC cages and, so it's it's the it's the mix of different enclosure types. I it's it's crazy because I'm usually a pretty anal person, but it doesn't bother me that my cages don't match. <laughs> like <some people. laughs> that that's so funny, man. I'm the exact same way. It it has to be <laughs> functional. That's really all I care about. <laughs> when I, I started, you it, put the it was, right... I was. <laughs> Tommy, if you put the right animal in the cage, nobody's going to be looking at the cage, right? Exactly, yes. <laughs> They're not going to come up and go, wow, what a beautiful cage, you know, when you got some high <laughs> blue and black <laughs> green tree inside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are you still using those acrylic cages? I do, yeah. They're they're great. Yeah. I mean, how do they, they're very hard. How do, how do they function? How are they different than PVC cages? They, so I built them with ventilation holes that I can cover up. So I built them with ventilation holes and I put tracks and on the sides over the ventilations where I could, I could slide in and out uh, acrylic piece of, you know, piece of acrylic that covers them up um, because I wasn't sure you know, how much or how little ventilation I was going to need in Arizona. 
But yeah, yeah, they they work great. They hold humidity great. They they hold heat pretty good. So they worked out really well. And I, as, over the years, I I stopped putting ventilation in my cages altogether. I mean, I, I don't. Oh wow. Think you need it if you're if you're not missing at all. I mean, there's no really need to to put ventilation. So and there, there's enough ventilation. Yeah. I think they get they get through the the sliding glass. So. Yeah, and just yeah, yeah, opening the doors every once in a while, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah so I stopped putting ventilation in my cages altogether. And the acrylic ones that I have, I, I have the, the holes covered up, so. Mm. What are your guys' thoughts on that? I mean, do you think... I guess For ventilation? It all depends on how you're... Yeah, how, you're, how much you're spraying or how humid you're keeping your, your cages, but... What do you guys think about that? Right. Um, I do the same thing. Um, so I have some PVC cages, um, and they came with the vent in the back. And just from being where, you know, again, my location and where my animals are housed, um, my, my background temp in my – I guess this is important too. My background temp in my snake area stays very constant, 71 to 73 year-round. So it, there's not much fluctuation in temperature, which I think is a good thing. Um, but what I noticed with the, having the ventilation open was that um, when the, and the way that the PVC cages were set up, the the higher perch that was set up to be under the closest to the heat panel was closest to the vent to the ventilation area where the cut in was, and that I noticed if when I temp gun the snake. Like on the top, they would be 84, and then on the bottom, they would be like 78, but on the back, they would be like 75. So yeah. I just shut shut down that ventilation. And um, then, I, you know, and going forward, um, I have – I'm the same way with cages. None of my cages match. I'll, I'll buy like a group of six. So I'll have like six of one style and six of another and, and those type of things, right? But um, – the newer cages that I've purchased since the PVC cages, uh, I, ha- I'm, I like you, Tommy, uh, I either have two style doors. One is a sliding glass door, and the other one is a drop-down acrylic, single-piece drop-down acrylic, which has a gap around it. And my experience mm-hmm. is similar to yours. I feel that um, there's enough ventilation going b- between that slider and also with the drop-down acrylic doors as well. I just feel there's enough ventilation going in and out of there that, you know. And now if, if I was misting every day like I was before, I would probably have to – I would have to increase ventilation um, right, right. in those cages, certainly. But with the way that I'm doing things right now, I, I just don't feel it's needed. Yeah, I agree. But, again, whatever works it, for your – your area and your situation. So. Tommy, the other thing that could, you know, a lot could come into play is, is your substrate. You know, uh, if you, if mm-hmm. you're using a substrate that naturally, um, you know, uh, absorbs water and holds water and will maintain humidity, you know, that may, may make a difference as well as far as misting, not misting, cage ventilation requirements so like what what are you using as your substrate on neos all the way up to adults yeah so i um i use paper towel for everything 
and I, I always have. Okay. Um, the, the neos, I, I keep them actually neos a lot more human than my adults. So yeah. especially for the first you know six months, I'll make sure the paper towel substrates all it's always wet. And yeah. which yep. is not an issue because I'm pretty much cleaning them every day. Every time they, you know, defecate <laughs> right. or even your urinate, I clean them. So, um, yeah, yeah. So they don't. There's no chance of you know, bacteria or anything like that. One because I'm a germaphobe, and <laughs> and two because I don't I don't like the smell. But um, yeah, I mean I'm I'm constantly cleaning neo tubs. Um, so they're they're soaking wet. There's always condensation on the on the tubs, um, and I, I mean you do notice that neonates. I mean they they do urinate every you know day or every couple days. So um, they're obviously getting water from somewhere. I, I keep a little ketchup plastic, you know, those little ketchup cups, yeah, um, filled with water for them to drink. But I mean I honestly don't know if they they use that or if they're just drinking condensation off the sides of the tub or or ceiling but that's a that's um, a small that's yeah. a small water source for them yeah well, i mean you always hear of like nightmare stories of me and i mean these things are not the brightest species in the, <laughs> in the world <laughs> yeah. i've heard stories yeah. of dna drowning in in water dishes i mean that's just crazy so I like to keep them small so there's no chance of them drowning. Gotcha, gotcha. In yeah. adults, yeah. It's... In adults, I keep on paper towel as well. I I used to so I, mean, I used to dump water on the paper towels, um, but I stopped doing that. So I I mean they're just basically dry paper towels. Um, and again, I I never have an issue with with bad sheds so. And I, I mean, I don't even. Do you guys monitor your humidity in your cages? I don't. Yeah, yeah, I don't no. either. Um, Me neither. No. Yeah. No, I think uh, you know. I think just read. You know, like we talked about reading the animals, and uh, obviously mm-hmm. making sure it's not wet. You know, twenty four seven. But basically, just going on that that shed. The shed to me means a lot. You know. Right. And so I just manipulate manipulate things to try to get that good shed, and I, I don't really – I don't think a lot of the humidity monitors that we're utilizing are that accurate anyway. So I – Yeah. I, yeah, just – it's it's like I, I, I never I never measure humidity, and I, I never weigh green trees. I just, you know, it's just, <laughs> neither of those two I have found to be productive in utilizing my time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll weigh once in a while, but yeah, normally I don't, I don't bother weighing. I mean, just for curiosity, I'll, I'll weigh a female, if, you know, when I'm before I'm uh, pairing her up. But yeah. yeah, I don't really weigh either. But other than that, I mean, I don't really Tommy, do anything special yep. as far as husband husbandry. So, what are you gonna say, buddy? So I was gonna say, can you tell us uh, your how you know what are you feeding your frequency you do anything special with diet yeah i don't i feed mainly mice but i i mean i do feed rats to adults small rats 
I, I mix it up a little bit. Neonates, I'll just feed, you know, pinky mice until they're, you know, appropriate size and then just keep bumping up the the size of the, the mouse. But And I don't feed rats until they're adults. Not that I think there's anything wrong with it, but I just, just don't want to purchase rats. <laughs> you know, continue to purchase, you know, different prey items and different sizes. It just makes it simple to, you know, keep, keep feeding them mice. But yeah, like I said, uh, as far as adults, I'll I'll switch it up. I'll I'll feed either jumbo mice or adult mice or or you know rat small rats. It's just tough with it. I mean, I don't know if you guys agree with this, but the, those jumbo mice, it just seems like it's always always the ex breeders. It just doesn't seem like a, a a good quality of mice. So I'm starting to get starting to get away from feeding them jumbo mice. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I'll go. Yeah, yeah. I'll just go with there, the adult mice seem, or, or small rats. There seemed to be a, a time in the husbandry where people were getting away from feeding rats to green trees. I think mm-hmm. there was a thought that it, it causes obesity or or maybe the you know increased fat uh, in, in in a rat compared to a mouse might you know it could cause prolapse. Uh, Lots of different uh, reasons that I heard where a lot of people were saying that, you know, you shouldn't, you know, that mice were a superior food source for green trees. And I think, mm-hmm. I almost think the community got to where they were underfeeding, especially their their adult, uh, you know, sub-adult females and females because of this worry of, of them becoming obese or, or prolapsing. And I was I was under that for a couple of years. Even my biggest females, you know, I would just feed them like two jumbo mice, you know, or three sometimes because that's just what they needed, you know. They're they're that's just what the, what they needed, whether they were putting on weight after they laid a clutch or just for maintenance feeding. But now I've mm-hmm. swung the opposite direction, and almost all of my adult females are now getting small rats, you know. Yeah. Uh, when they eat uh, my, my males, you know, like you said, uh, adult mice for males their whole life. Great. Um, but I've just, I've kind of swung the other side of the pendulum back to where now um, I've got a co- I've got one female that does not like rats. Luckily she's smaller. And so I can feed her mice, but my big adult girls, man, they, they get small rats. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I haven't had any any issues with that. And hell, I know Greg Maxwell. You read his book. He, you know, he'd feed his females medium racks. Yeah, I mean, I can't that's imagine big, that. That's a that's a big meal. That's a big that's a big meal, isn't it? You know, um, that's a big meal. But he he was successful for you know doing it for a long time. So yeah, but uh, I mean, variety I, 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 cannot. First... I mean, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was I was going to say, and you, I know you're going to talk about variety. For the first time last week, I fed my adult green trees chicks, frozen chicks. Have you ever done that? I have. I mean, for um, trouble feeders, like, well, getting back to moving from Arizona, so that first group of snakes that I bought, the female, so I bought her in March. She didn't eat the whole time I lived in Arizona. 
I tried to feed her chick. I tried everything. I tried to feed her chicks. I tried to feed her rats. I tried to feed her, you know, anything. And um, the crazy part is, as soon as I moved to Pittsburgh, she ate like a week later. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. But I, I did. That's yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I did feed well, chick to a couple just to see. So you've, you've done it. Another male that's trying to get. Yeah. I uh, I ended and, up with a package. I, I ended up with a package of frozen chicks. I ordered a single chick just to get uh, down, you know, to to establish these mm-hmm. neos. Well, they ended up sending me a, a pack of frozen chicks, like twenty or thirty or something. So I had all these yeah. frozen chicks, which I had never fed, and I was not real confident in feeding them, and. Uh, so I messaged Patrick Holmes and, and who, who's local to me, and I said, "Patrick, have you ever fed chicks to green trees?" And he goes, "I've fed check, chicks to every or, arboreal species I've ever kept, and have never had a problem." Yeah. So, and yeah. it was like crack to them, man. I'm telling you, they just yeah, yeah. They, they loved it. They loved it. So, I mean, why would you think there would be a problem? Because of the claws, or I just... I get just unfamiliarity, basically, yeah. just. You know, if they can digest bones, they can digest claws, right? I mean, so that right, right. that shouldn't be an issue. But I just had not heard of a lot of people doing it on a consistent basis. So, you know, just wasn't sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't think I don't but, think there's yeah. anything wrong with it. And like I said, variety is can never be a bad thing. So have you ever thought have you ever thought about feeding um mixing ASFs into your rodent rotation? I mean, I thought about it, but um, I just never have. I, I think I heard didn't I heard somewhere that if you get them on ASF, it's hard to get them to eat anything else. Is that is there any truth to that? Or well, I know that that can be true with ball pythons. That that is their okay. preferred um, food source. But I haven't heard that with with green trees. But it it, it could happen. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I, I don't. I don't have any experience with it either. Um, but I know people that that feed ASFs uh, to their green trees. Patrick does. Um, they're they're more expensive than mice or rats. Mm-hmm. But theoretically, people will say their nutritional value is enough to overcome the the smaller size. I I don't. Again, I don't know if that's just anecdotal or certainly there hasn't mm-hmm. been any scientific study to to prove that but i don't know it, i'm kind of you know what works why change a good thing you know what well, mice yeah, and yeah. rats have, have worked well for for me for 20 years so it's gonna, i'm going to be hard pressed to to change that yeah it all seems like everything with green trees is anecdotal so <laughs> for sure right i mean yep yep yeah <laughs> It's, uh, it's really impossible to do any kind of meaningful, significant study unless you have uh, a, a very large number of these with a control group and yeah. all that, and that's just not feasible. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a, I might try it one day, but there, there's a local guy, that, a friend of mine that breeds ASFs, actually, and um, I may, may end up trying to feed, a, feed some, so we'll see. Yeah. 
Yeah, certainly. I don't think I don't think it would be uh, detrimental in in any way whatsoever. And again, you think about well, maybe a problem feeder would respond to an ASF when it doesn't respond to a, a you know a mouse pain because they're about the same yeah. size, you know, day day old. So who knows? Yeah, that'd be interesting to try to try it on you know problem neos. On that, yeah. uh, have you guys you guys have not tried that? I have not. I have never tried ASS. I know Greg Stevens was a big proponent of African sulfur rats. He actually kept a breeding colony mm-hmm. um, at his huh. location, and uh, he he liked them because he said that the the babies had a little bit more fur to them, and he felt they held scent a little bit better. So for establishing mm-hmm. DNA, he liked them, and um, he said the also the other side benefit was, and they didn't have the strong rodent odor that mice and rats have if you if you breed them in your you know in your house or near your house. Um, yeah. So that's why he had kind of chosen. But I've never tried them. I actually bought some like four or five years ago. I, I what I just made a huge rodent purchase, and I purchased you know everything like a $500 rodent uh, purchase, and it came in. I did buy some African sulfurs because I didn't have the uh, the larger mice and uh, loaded them to my, to my freezer. And um, it's also the freezer where my kids keep their freezy pops, and this was in the middle of the summer, <laughs> so my kids decided that they were going to go out and get freezy pops, and they didn't <laughs> close the freezer. Um, so my rodent order that I just got in three days ago, um, I walked out to my garage, and to my shock, there was a freezer door that was open, and everything in it was completely thawed out. So that ended my oh, African sauce for experiment for me. So I never, I never purchased them again. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I've, I have not tried them. Are are those That's children funny. still alive, buddy? Are those children uh, live? <laughs> well, you know what, Bill? Ironically. Yeah. I uh, had my so it was definitely my youngest son, <laughs> and we actually went to the store yesterday, and I made him go with me to the grocery store. And of course, he saw that there were the freezy pops were available because it feels like summer. It's like, yeah, can we get some? And I said, yes, but you are not allowed to put them in the freezer with the rodents. They go in the other freezer. So. <laughs> Oh man, I'm sure. You, I'm sure you got to laugh yes. over it. I mean, what what can you do? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Only only what reptile people do? would understand. Um, so when so, I moved from Arizona, so I moved in with my sister until I got my housing situated. So I had. <laughs> she's the best. I mean, so I brought these snakes home. I had to set them up in you know one of the rooms of her house and you know keep frozen rats in her freezer and um damn i mean obviously if you you don't keep up reptiles you think it's it's weird the whole the whole thing but uh, <laughs> the stuff that she had to put up with uh while i was living that's there that's a good sister not, not fun <laughs> yeah but after, you know what after a while she, she got into it <laughs> really she um so she, yeah she's a surgeon so like oh, if wow. Like she got she got into the whole breeding thing and like 
would help me separate the eggs and put them in the incubator and all that stuff. And if a snake would pass away, we'd do a necropsy on it. She'd get her little gloves out and scalpel and cut it open and take pictures. and It's like uh, high school science, biology class. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I'm looking at our outline, and we talked about – we've already talked about your your breeding projects, Um, Tommy, and I think you did a good job going down, you know, what you're breeding right now and your recent – clutches um so i'm gonna steal buddy's question about some more into your breeding technique like it seems like you're all over the all over the place in your breeding that you, you know you don't just have a a single fall winter season or spring season or so like when do you breed how do you decide when a female's ready um do you cycle are you cycling these things you know Give us some insight into that. Yeah, so, yeah, I do actually, I temperature cycle and kind of feed cycle. I mean, um, I'll, I'll start cooling down the females and, uh, and males in late August. Um, and it's it's easy to do here because you have the air conditioning on at that time. Um, so I'll start in August and usually pair up in, you know, mid to late September. Um, so I temperature cycle and, and I, like I said, I semi feed cycle, won't feed the females for like a month and then start, you know, giving them weekly, you know, feedings. But, um, I don't do light cycle or anything like that, but I do generally pair things up in the fall, like late September or early October. But okay. These, and these so when you say, few, when you yeah, say, I was going to say when you temperature cycle, so describe that to me. What what are your normal, like in the summer, what are your normal daytime temps, night temps, night drop? What What's your, mm-hmm. your normal non-breeding temperature? So normally I'll keep them at 83 to 84 degrees. I have a, you know, the, the thermostat set at 83 or 84, and okay. um, I'll just night drop to, to 80 on a normal okay. adult. But when I'm breeding, I'll just, those nighttime temps, I'll drop down a degree, you know, a degree a week, you know, for a few weeks. I, I don't drop it down more than 74 degrees. Um, okay. Why not? I really right, yeah, don't think you, gonna... you need to. Yeah. Okay. I really don't think you need to. And two, my my room doesn't get any, any colder than that. So it's pointless to you know, try to, I know a lot of people drop them down to you know, in the 60s, but I don't want to, because most of them are in the same room. I have two, well, here, first of all, I have three bedrooms in this house that I'm renting. So I have one bedroom for myself, and the other two are for the snakes. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, I just don't want to risk, you know, getting other, you know, sub-adults or, you know, adults that I'm not breeding sick by dropping the temperatures in that room. Um that low so I just, gotcha. I just don't drop just, anything below 74 degrees 74 is your it's interesting 74 yeah. is your breeding basement so to speak and that's buddy's normal temperature like you know buddy keeps his would you say buddy you keep your room about 74 year round 
Yeah, seventy-one to seventy-three. Um, I don't, I don't yeah. let the condors get that low all the time, obviously, but that's just the the temperature of of, of the room I'm in. Yeah. Well, buddy, what's so your night? Do you drop your night time temperatures, or do you shut off the heat at night? So, or what do you? Yeah. So I uh, everybody gets a drop. So I. I do the same mm-hmm. thing, like 84, 85 degree, maybe 83 degree warm spot, 12 hours a day, including neonates, and then everyone gets a three or four degree temperature drop at night. Um, and that's the routine temperature that I use. And uh, when I do breed, I, I, I take, I will take the adults right down to like the 73, 72 degree temperature. Uh, overnight for breeding with a warm up during the day. Um, and sometimes a, a lot about what you were saying, Tommy, about reading the snake. Like if I have a female mm-hmm. that I notice is really hanging under, under the hot spot, I might bump that hot spot up a degree or two to like 86 just to kind of maybe compensate for the nighttime lows and see how they, they react to it. Um, uh, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I do. You know, just, you know, not, not definitely way cooler than you know, when I first started keeping chondros. Um, you know, the the expectation was you kept a hot spot 92 to 88 degrees, and pretty much you're you know wow. all the time. Um, and so my cages were much bigger than too. So the, the obviously there were areas in the cage that were lower temps where the snakes could seek refuge uh, from. But as you know, I've learned from others and. You know, we're most likely keeping we were most likely keeping them too hot, and and other other things yeah. that we were doing wrong. So um, that that's how I run things right now. And it, you know, I'm gonna have to knock, knock wood a little bit. It's been very successful for me. Um, so yeah, so that that's you know that's kind of how I roll with temperatures with those, with uh, my animals. Yeah. No, and I know a lot of people are really freaked out. I guess about giving neonates nighttime temperature drops as well. Um, and, uh, but I've, I've given them that, that little, you know, three degree nighttime drop. Um, and I, I haven't had an issue with a neonate, um, related to that temperature at all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't do it, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it for the neonates. Um, I'll, yeah, I don't know if you guys ever noticed, but seems like when they they first hatch out, they're always in the back of the tub um, where the heat is. But, you know, as they age a little bit, they, they graduate to the, the front of the tub or middle of the tub. It's pretty pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have noticed that for sure. So, um, um, Tommy, you said you, you feed cycle a little bit and you'll maybe withhold food and then offer it more regularly. Are you withholding food before you start pairing? Is, is, is that the deal? Or when are you, when are you going to, when are you kind of given that, that food break? Yeah. So yeah, I do withhold before I start pairing like a month, probably about a month before I start pairing or two. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I pair them up, I'll start feeding on a more regular basis more frequently than I usually do. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feed, I, I feed like every, it's not regimented, so I don't feed, you know, 
14 days or every 14 days or every 21 days. Uh, it's usually between, you know, three, two and three weeks. I'll yeah. feed. Um, Cause I, I mean, I definitely learned over the years. I was definitely overfeeding when I first got into the hobby. Um, yeah. Is that right? You know, the tip, yeah. The typical, all the females will, would, would tail hang. I'd feed every 10 days, 14 days, but over the years, I, I um, stop feeding so much. When do you, how often do you guys feed? I'm an every 10 to 14 day guy, but small meals. I mean, what I consider small meals. Yeah. Now, at that frequency, do you have females that tail hang? Because I, I don't have any females that tail hang anymore. Um, and there, I, I mean, I, I used big to females. have. Yeah, I've got some massive females. I don't have any to do. I've had one that is was a tail hanger in the past, um, mm-hmm. but she but she died several years ago, and I that's the only one I've ever had, and and none of mine tail hang now. T- tail hanging is an interesting uh, phenomenon, and Buddy probably knows more about it than I do. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily always related to being obese or overfed. Uh, buddy, what are your thoughts on on those tail hangers? Because we've all seen them. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of people do think that the that's a result of uh, too frequent feedings or too large of a feedings. Um, my my thoughts are is that the female is actually not defecating on a regular cycle and. Um, because she's not defecating regularly, that she's holding the stool, um, which is something mm-hmm. that they may not do in the wild. And um, because they're holding the stool, that you know, they're not sure whether they're, they're going to release that built-up stool or they're they're going to pass it. And so the 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 tail loses uh, muscle; they lose some muscle tone there hanging it. Um, I notice I have females that will occasionally will do a tail drop, and it's because they haven't been to the, you know, haven't haven't defecated. And so my little trick is I uh, pour a little water on the substrate, and I pull the perches, and normally the next day they've they've defecated, and they're back to the perch mm-hmm. normally. Um, but I can't say for certain that what what the true cause is. Um, I know that Michael Cermak in Australia. He was doing some really interesting stuff with chondros. I'm really sad he he decided to step away from chondros. But for instance, um, you'll, he was uh, talking about tail kinks in older females, and he was working with his vet, and they had done X-rays and stuff like that. And the X-rays had kind of shown that um, that it really wasn't necessarily a, a traumatic injury for the tail kink, but it was. Uh, just because they they've actually had some osteoporosis in that area, and so that's where the bone had kind of broken down, and and that was a weak point. And I guess you know the way they posture themselves going to the bathroom may have resulted in that permanent kinking. Um, so yeah, I, like going back to the tail drop question, I don't really know the the true what what the true cause is or what the true correction would be for it, but that's been my experience. To me, yeah, um, it seems like that. To me, it seems like you know, once it, once you have a female that you know consistently is a 
tail hanger, that won't improve. Like if you change her diet, if you put her on a diet, if she gets thinner. So I, I think it's it, it's definitely a muscle tone issue in a lot of those uh, in a lot of those females, and I, I don't know, you know, why that is. I I, I just don't know. But but I think it's a right. I think it's a like Buddy said. I, I think it's a muscle tone issue. Yeah, I've, I've often wondered. I, I had an interesting conversation uh, with Ian Bissell a long time ago, but we were just chatting about the fact that, um, and I think he's actually mentioned. Ian's actually mentioned this on, on some podcasts. Is that um, you know we 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 feed our we feed our uh, reptiles rodents. And the food that the rodents uh, eat is actually designed to grow the rodent and help the rodent reproduce, which may not necessarily meet the dietary needs of the animal consuming them. And so I wonder, too, like if there's any type of uh, vitamin deficiency that um, this could be, you know, that the tail dropping could be a result of. Um, any, anything along those lines, or is it? Um, mm-hmm. Could it be an auto autoimmune type situation? Um, so it, it's it's very interesting um, to when we look at that, just to try to figure out w- what actually is the root cause. Um, I, I can tell you for yeah. for you know, a lot of people are like, oh, if you feed large heavy meals like rats, that that's going to happen. I can tell you that. Um, you know, my first probably decade in keeping condors, I fed rats. And I started, you know, as soon as my neonates were old enough to take rat pinks, I started them right off on, you know, moved them right to rat pinks. Um, and I, I never had a tail dropper. Um, but, I, you know, occasionally I've had one and I can't figure it out. Like it's some people like, oh, it's, it's related to a prolapse or, or something along those lines. But my personal experience that that's not been the case. Um, I'm, you know, again, going back to, is it something that's maybe dietary, nutrition related, um, and is that, or is it muscle tone related as a cause of maybe lack of exercise or or dietary issues mm-hmm. that are affecting that muscle tone? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've never noticed, like in the t- tail hanger that I had, uh, it didn't affect her in any way. She she was a she was a great breeder. Uh, all of her clutches were solid. It was actually nice because one time I missed on an egg box, and since she was a tail hanger, she laid her entire clutch just right on the ground, you know, not dropping it from the perch. Her, now her her tail is on the ground, and so she laid a nice little pile right there on the ground, and all the eggs did great. But uh, so it didn't affect her; certainly didn't affect her reproduction. But I, I never could figure out why she did it. Hey, buddy, it's funny that I forgot to mention this, but um, you mentioned Greg Schroeder earlier, um, who was a moderator of the MVF, but he, he, he lives in Scottsdale. I, he actually reached out to me because I posted a picture of um, the black pearl um, animal from Lecky, and he reached out to me, and he actually came down to my house and checked out my collection, my small collection. 
So I got to meet him in person, and he's a big oh, proponent wow. of he wanted to. Yeah, at that time he didn't have any conjures, but he was. I mean, he still had a passion for the species, and um, he was he wanted to get back in, and he was a big proponent of a big believer in the fact that he wanted to grow his own rodents and and feed them what he wanted to, what he thought would be beneficial. Um, for the you know the diet needs of of green trees, so pretty interesting. Very interesting. Greg, he had a lot of great ideas about dew points. Yes, very did, smart. Yes, I would dew point dew point exactly and humidity and temperature and yeah yeah, yeah very very yeah. analytical smart guy. Yes, for sure. Did you guys know him personally or? or just from the MVF or any of the the, the um, uh, gatherings that you guys had back then? So I I knew I, him from the I, MVF. I I've never met him in person. Yeah. So um, and we had we he actually was a guest on one of our episodes. Um, he came on one time and chatted with us a bit, um, which was really cool. Uh, you know. A, would love to have meet him. Love to meet him in person and talk to him in person, uh, but never, I've never had the opportunity, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. He came to the house and took pictures. I mean, he was all into it. He took pictures and he actually posted them on MVS. So. Back in the back in the glory days. Man, back in the day, goodness. <laughs> We've had. We've had some amazing guests on this show. I, I go back and I think, you know, about all of the people that we have had on this show. It's it's humbling. Yeah. Yeah, you guys had a now, good show. Really good. And now we can add now we can add Thomas Budway to the list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> There All right, go. we are listening. I mean, we're, we're we're this this show's going awesome. We're uh, we're down to about twenty minutes. So, um, Tommy, I I wanted to ask you about. Okay, so you got this best looking neo in the clutch, right? Of course, it's a trouble feeder. It's a runner. What? Yeah. So, like before you before you like delve into what you're going to do with that beast, how do you typically establish your neos? Do you do you try to feed pre-shed? You know what kind of what what's your what's your regimen? Yeah, I, n- I never try to feed pre-shed. I'm, I I know a lot of people do, but I just don't think there's a reason to. Um, okay. Things like the the hungry they are, the the better chance you you have to get them eating. Um, but I mean. I've been fortunate enough to have the last few clutches that I had. They're they're very easy to get started. Um, I, I use you, the normal Tommy, things. Do, that, yeah. Uh, do yeah. you religiously like scent your first trial? Like, I I, I chip down scent everything on their first mm-hmm. their first trial. Do do you do that, or do you just you just get a pink, heat it up, bam, pop it in there, tease feed. I started doing that probably a couple of years ago, and I think it it does make a difference. Yeah, so I'll I started doing what everything chick down chick down put, everything yeah, yeah. chick down yep yep 
Yep, me too. Yeah, I started doing it probably two or three years ago, and I, I think it definitely does make a difference. But for stubborn feeders, I it doesn't make a difference. I mean, it does sometimes. It, yeah, agree. It doesn't matter what you yeah. do. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I've yep. tried for stubborn feeders. I've tried everything from the the frog juice, the egg yep. whites, and soup yep. broth. I mean, I've tried everything. And <laughs> stubborn eaters. I've done it all too. Stubborn, <laughs> stubborn it, eaters. And you're right. And you're right. I I can't think of a single time where it's helped. Like if they're not going to respond to like chick down or maybe try one other, you know, one one other grandma's recipes, but most of them don't respond. If they're not going to respond to chick down or or tuna tuna juice or whatever, then they're not going to respond to anything. (laughs) And 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 then that's when you just have to you know, make some decisions about, you know, and again, how long do you wait? When do you assist feed? Yeah. When do you force feed? And and what do you force feed and how often? And, and so bring us through that. Bring us through some a couple of your really tough feeders that you have gotten established. What's worked? What have you done? Uh, so I've been lucky enough the last probably few years of clutches that I've had have all been pretty good eaters. The first clutch I had was a was a Beox Cyclops um, clutch. Only ended up, I mean, I had like 19 eggs. <laughs> Only hatched three out, and um, okay. they were one was okay. I mean, one was or two fed right off the bat, but one was a stubborn eater. And this is back. This is my first clutch, so I mean, I sure. thought you had to get this thing to eat like right away. I probably killed it trying to, to force feed it it's probably i probably killed yeah. it so i tried to force feed it one night and it was dead like the next day probably stressed out and, um and what'd you try to feed what did you try to force feed it back, what'd you back do then i tried to force feed it a whole whole pink yeah whole so pink bad. okay yep yeah yeah i mean you watch the videos the youtube videos of i forget who i watched i don't, know if, I don't think it was rico but it was somebody else um it was force feeding a whole pink to a, a neonate, and it looked pretty simple. <laughs> and again, I, mean, I didn't kill it that night, but I'm pretty sure it died because it was stressed out the, the next day. Um, but now I don't. Over the years, you just gradually, I'm obviously learn more as time goes by and more experience you get, but. I don't like this this clutch that I have now. The the ones that I'm eating, it's a month and a half. I'll probably wait another few weeks, and if it doesn't it doesn't eat, I will I'll, I'll feed it a pink head or tail. Um, tails yeah. are really easy to get down. Pink heads, you just pop it in Super. their mouth, and they're, it, they they normally will 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 take it down. Um, but yeah, that's what that's what I do. But buddy, yeah, what like about said, you? Over what, the years, I've oh, huh? definitely got more tolerable. But yeah, you're to yeah, well, your technique, to eat, your technique, eat right away. Yeah, your technique's gotten better, so the it makes sense that the number of animals that you would have to assist or force feed goes down, right? Yes, for sure. Yeah, buddy, what about you? Hey, buddy, some, even even. Go ahead, Tommy. I don't. I'm not for. Uh, no, go ahead, Tom. No, you go, buddy. I'm not, yep, I'm not, I don't force feed. So the length that I will go is I will try to have that 
have a snake eat a pink head or take a mouse tail and swallow it on its own. And sometimes they'll, they'll eat a pink head or they'll swallow the mouse tail. If you give them 15 or 20 minutes after that and reset and go in there with the whole pinky, they will eat it. But I don't, I don't assist, I don't force feed. So I've kind of, so all right. So know, buddy, buddy, when you, buddy, when you say you give them a pink, uh, a, a tail, how are you doing right. that? Are you presenting that on tongs and they strike and you yes. stick it in their mouth? Yes. So yep. you never, so those, you never the tongs grab that it. You and I like Bill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I use that angled tongue and if uh, you can yeah. kind of hold that tail and kind of push it like when they're striking, you want to meet them. No, I'm not restraining chondros and, and putting meals in them. Okay, so what what do you do for a runner? What do you, what if you can't even get an animal to strike? So a runner is really challenging. And my my experience is that most of them don't make it, but the ones that I have that have have been successful is my ultimate goal. My first goal is to get them to strike. So if I just I know they're going to run, but if I just keep on pestering them, and if they strike at me, I close the cage and I walk away. And then I try to repeat that habit so they kind of figure out if they strike at me or me pestering them or whatever their the stimulus is, <clears throat> and, and I want to build that habit. So I want to build a habit of them striking. That's the first thing I want to do. Yeah. So it, it's a process. And a lot of times they won't make it because it is a process. But if you can get to stand their ground and strike at you, then you either try, if they're doing that regularly, then you try with a pink um, or a pink head or a mouse down. Try to get it in there so they get it and they swallow it, and then you try to build from that moving forward. Yeah, I, I, I agree with a lot of that. It's interesting. I had a, a conversation with Gary uh, a week ago about runners, and, um, you know, we both have come to the conclusion that we know how to make a green tree strike. Like, you know, we have enough experience where we know how far to push it and either they're going to strike or they're going to fling themselves off the perch and then run. And then it's all over. So I, I give my, I give my babies three weeks after they have their shed. If they haven't accepted a meal, either, if they'll strike, you can get a pink head lodged in their mouth, and that's one thing, and it's great, and those almost always do well. But if I have a runner that I can't even get to strike consistently, week three, they're getting forcibly fed a mouse tail. And that's, for me, I've had, I've had good success with a limited number of, you know, these runners, which are, you know, I think we all agree, the worst, the worst case scenario, you can't even get it to strike. But I think a lot of times yeah. you get too far behind the, the eight ball. And, um, you know, just even putting uh, a tail a quarter way down their mouth and letting them swallow that, that teaches them, you know, that, it, that yeah. it's okay to swallow. And I think that, you know, maybe next time they will strike and you can lodge your pink head in their mouth. But I think a lot of times people get too far down – on the other end of the feeding and then they, you know, it just, they get worn out and they just die of mal malnutrition because these things are not, 
meant to go for a long, long time without getting that first meal in. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I've never lost, besides the one that I killed the first one, <laughs> I've never lost a deal <laughs> from, from not eating, from not eating. I mean, it's, t- I mean, some of them has taken like six, six months of, you know, feeding heads or tails and things like that. But yeah. Um, yeah. That's amazing. It, yeah. It, it's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Again, I have a video of them. <clears throat> With that, it's a it's a very I have a video on YouTube. It's a very old video of me. I had a chondro that was uh, I guess at this point maybe a year of age, and all I would eat was pink heads. I mean, this thing would strike like a you know like a a, a, a mad chondro, and but it would just <laughs> yeah. never, it would just never wrap <laughs> and and do anything. It would just eat pink heads. And it went on for like a year. And then finally, I mean, and I tried all the tricks. I tried the scenting and all this stuff. And so after I made the video, like the next week, I, I said, you know what? I haven't tried scenting, um, offering a scented pink to this animal. So I offered a scented pink. And you know what? That thing took it and wrapped it and, and ate it. And from that day forward, there was no problems with that snake. So it's interesting how initially they may refuse something, but you might have to go back to it to to get them to to eat. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's funny because it and, seems like once they get it, they get it. It's, it like clicks, and they they learn, they know how to eat. I mean, it might be like I yeah. said, it might be two months, it might be a month, it might be two months, it might be six months, but once they they figure it out, they um. And it's they, they it's part of what makes them it's part of what makes them so frustrating but so <laughs> awesome all at the same time. I mean, to yeah. be, finally figure an animal out, you know that that's like that. It's like a big sense of accomplishment, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like I beat you. Well, I I we went to yeah, war yeah. and I won. <laughs> Well, this year, like I said, this year has been a good year. This, these two clutches have been pretty easy to get started, but you know, previous clutches, my, my neighbors probably think I'm like a serial killer or something with all the profanities <laughs> coming out. <laughs> uh, screaming at the I, top of my lungs. I, 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 eat. I have a theory. I have a theory, and I think that as more of these animals are hatched and raised and bred in captivity that the feeding trials of these things are going to go easier and easier and easier every generation. What, what do you guys think about that? I mean, it could be. Yeah. It, and personally, it seems like that's the way it's gone for me, but I don't know if it's due to experience or what, what you just yeah. yeah. Explain. So. Yeah. What, what do you think, buddy? Again, you, you've back been in this for long. So. Uh, uh, yeah. Exactly. Anecdotal. Yeah. Um, I think so. I think. Well, uh, I'll go back to Rob Worrell. I mean, R- Rob and I have had some open disagreements for many years, but one of the things I do like about Rob, and I do agree with him, is that he picked his holdbacks based on feeding. So if yeah, the first time he that. offered an animal yep. a prey item, he kept it. And then he 
used that to establish his jade line and and um I do have animals this actually this clutch that just hatched i mean i i i only I, when i when I go out for neonates, I only throw out a limited number of pinkies like you know rookie mistake is if you're hatched out fifteen chondros and you're gonna don't thaw out fifteen pinkies right you don't you don't do that you thaw out maybe six or seven and and go from there right um but like you yeah. know this this group that I could tell you that has the the lucky bloodline, but then again, it also has Trooper Walsh bloodline too. So, long time history of, of being in captivity. Uh, so far, the animals I've tried to feed, they all they all ate on the first go without any scenting. So, um, is that is is that because they they've been established that long in captivity, um, or is, is it because of you know Rob Orwell thinking that this is how we should be selecting neonates, um, or is it just plain luck? I don't know the answer to that, but or I think it, I would hope that. Or, or is well, it your it, skill? Or is it your skill level? Yeah. Or I, I guess I it's know, a, little, yeah, a little bit of skill there, sure. Yeah. Well, Christian Stewart believes the same thing. Like when the the three clutches that he's hatched out on breeding loan. I mean, he's with the first one with Jake. He's like probably going to be a good eater. Um, Jake was a great eater. The next clutch was with Sirac. Same thing, and they and this next clutch with velvet, same thing. They're they're all really really good eaters. So I mean, there there could be something to that. So, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, just food for thought. Like you said, all all anecdotal, right? I mean. Mhm. What? Uh, any other tricks to get babies to eat? Other than, you know, just trying everything that you wouldn't think they'd eat in the wild to scent them with, um, tease feed in. No, I mean, not. Night, yeah, not night really, versus I mean. day. Do, do, you, do you feed at night? Do you feed at day? When, when's I your do, first I, meal? I, yeah, I always feed at night. I mean, but I don't, I think it's probably a good idea to feed it in the day sometimes. So I had a, it was a few years ago. And, buddy, we were talking about this. Um, Tim came down. I had a clutch that year that there's like, three or four neos that were on a verge of eating, but I couldn't get them to eat on their own. And he, while he's here, he's like, oh, let me feed them. So it was probably 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He, he brought them all out. He lined them all up on my, this, my work table, and he just worked them all, you know, individually. At the same time, out in the – on the table is the afternoon, and he got each one of them to eat. It was it's yeah. pretty amazing. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I don't know if night or day makes a difference. What a, what a blessing to have, but that's Tim Morris, right? Yeah, yeah. What yeah, a blessing so, to have before you you know, on, Bill, was, to be able to come down yeah. to be able to come down and help you feed stubborn neos. Come on, man, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I was telling fair. Buddy be- <laughs> Yeah, so I was telling Buddy before you got on, he um so one of my I I bought one of my probably fifth or seventh or probably sixth or seventh conjure I bought was from James Optel. And I bought him in I paid for him in the winter and he didn't want to ship, so he brought him down and he brought Tim Morris with him. 
So this, I think this is like 2017. Yeah. And um, so him and James came. They stayed at a hotel in Pittsburgh, and we just, I mean, we tore it off that weekend. Yeah. And uh, awesome. so that's the first time I met him. He came down a couple years ago, and there's a there's a a skating event or skateboarding event that you know he's a big skateboarder. So yeah. there was an event in Pittsburgh, and he came down and visited, and that's when he got those those stubborn eaters to eat. And again, um, he went out and tore it up. But yeah, he's a, he's a blast, dude. And he he loves Pittsburgh. Yeah, he's one of his favorite cities. I, I don't know why, but really, I, I can't I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, buddy, buddy taught me to feed during the day, and he—I think he'll tell you the yeah. story. But he learned anecdotally. But I have more time during the day, <laughs> and I like to go to bed early. Yeah. So you know, I don't want to spend two hours um, trying to get newly newly hatched, established babies eating. You know, from eight o'clock at night to midnight. So it works great for me to feed during the day. I usually feed late morning, wake them up. You know, they're, obviously they're all asleep. Wake them up, yeah. get them pissed off, you know, and, and it goes pretty well. But I think that's what Buddy does too. Yeah. Yeah, you got to piss them off sometimes. I mean, there's some, I mean, you, have, yeah. you just have to beat them. Beat them in the head. Yeah, you do, man. You, you just have to read them. I mean, some you have to feed gentle, some you have to get a little more, you know, physical, but... That's you absolutely right. The animal and Some it, of them, yeah, it comes. Yep, that's right. Comes with an experience, so. Yep, yep. Some of them you literally just snuggled up to their nose, and they just open their mouth very slowly and gently and bite it. They never wrap it; they just bite it and then they eat yep. it. And, and others, you got to almost damn, you got to knock them off the perch, you know, to get them to, right. to strike and wrap it. It's crazy. You learn a lot. Yeah. So how how are your Buddy, feeding trials going this year, Bill? Mine have gone in, mine have gone incredible. Um, I, again, kind of like you, uh, I don't know if it's just been. Uh, I mean, it, it, it you know it's always a little bit of luck, a little bit of skill, but uh, mine have gone great, and uh, they they just seem to go better every year. That's kind of my, you know, kind of my theory that. You know, I think I think as we get deeper and deeper down the generation of captive bred stuff, I think it's not these things are going to be more consistently easier to establish. Yeah. yeah. And I think Buddy Buddy said the same thing. His all I think all of you know all of his babies this year have been relatively easy to establish as well. Correct. Yeah. Yep. It seems like yep. everybody's, everybody's. It's a, it's a good year for conjos. A lot of people are hatching. It seems like a lot of people are having success this year, more than more so than any other year I remember. Yeah, right. I think you're right. And, I think it's been a good year. It. Yep, and this this is the this is the make or break it part. You know, you get you hatch out those eggs, and those babies are there, and you're trying to this. You know, this is the hardest part, feeding the babies. This is the hardest, 
the steepest learning curve if you've never done it before and um you know you just gotta stick with it and get some experience and be persistent and uh, you'll be you will be successful yeah the important part is i mean you, you just have to be persistent like you said um over the years you just grow tolerant to you know them not eating and it's, you just don't let it upset you like it did when i first started Oh, man, I used to take it so personal when I couldn't get one to eat. <laughs> I mean, I, I would take it so personal. It's so it's so funny. Um, and I, I, I can just picture, you know, new new breeders and people, you know, I, I'm sure they feel the same way. Like, what am I doing wrong, you know? Yeah. Well, it's not always what you're doing wrong. It can be subtle little tweaks, but a lot of times it's just the animal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just can't take it personally. I agree. I I try to encourage people if they have trouble with an animal or more importantly, you know, a handful of animals to try to find somebody locally to help them or as a last case effort, try to find somebody that will accept the animals and establish them yeah. for you. And, you know, there's people that are willing to do that, and that's not a failure on the breeder's part whatsoever. That's just, yeah. you yeah. know, somebody somebody that has, you know, the wherewithal to ask, you know, ask for some help. And, again, like your experience with that one that it never ate in Arizona, but you moved it to Philadelphia and ate right away, uh, yeah. that happens a lot with baby green trees. You yeah. know, so just don't don't let those don't let ten of those damn things die. Just you know, send them off and let mm-hmm. let somebody else establish them. And man, you know, it's you know, just just don't well, don't let your ego get in the way. Yeah, yeah. That was there's a couple that I sent to James Optal and literally would not eat for me at all. Wouldn't even. Not even close to eating. I sent them to him, and they, they eat within the first day. The first time we try to feed them, they ate. So I, I don't know if there's I mean, something is, with the shipping. It's, <laughs> I was like, Are you it, it's a carbon copy. It's a it's a carbon copy story of when I I think I sent Buddy six animals, right, Buddy? One year. Right. Correct. Yep. And five. Yep, your five first of clutch. Six, eight, the, that was my second clutch. No, my third clutch. Oh, second clutch. Okay. Well, it wasn't my first. Those were a ruse at all. My second clutch was a sickness clutch, so maybe it was that clutch. Yeah, maybe. But yep. But anyway, I, I think I sent you six. Five of them ate the day you got them, and the other one ate the next Correct. day. Correct. That's right. So, you know. Isn't that funny? Again. They like to travel. Man, well, they do. Well, getting back, <laughs> yeah, getting back to Tim when he came here. And got the four that weren't eating from that one clutch that I had. It's, I'm watching him. He didn't do anything different that I did. But yeah, they ate for him. Maybe they maybe they sense some negativity. <laughs> I don't I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's awesome, and I've heard anecdotally so many stories just like this. Gary have told has told me stories about 
people close to him. Are you, are you, in fact, I sent I sent somebody a green tree, uh, well established uh, feeder. They couldn't get it to eat. I sent I sold it to a woman. Supposedly her boyfriend was a green tree expert. Couldn't get it to eat. Gary said, "Listen, uh, bring it to me. Uh, I'll get it to eat right in front of their eyes, or I'll keep it and establish it here." And sure enough, they bring it to Gary, and within 10 minutes, that thing had eaten, you know, just right there in front of their eyes. They, they hadn't even taken it out of the travel tub. You know, they just open up the little deli cup, and he sticks a, you know, a mouse in there, and it just immediately gobbles uh, it up. And you're like, yeah, well. That's crazy. You know, it's just, it is what it is. Can't figure yeah. them out. But do so something different. That, it's not work. If it's not yeah. worth it, do something different. Send it. Right. Get somebody to come. You know, do just do something different. If you expect it to, to eat and you're doing the same thing over and over and over, that's where you're going to fail. Yeah. So from this Serac signal herb clutch I had with Christian hashed out in 2020, I just sold one of my holdbacks to Joey Radulic in Florida. And shipped it to him in March, and it, I mean, this thing was like it ate from the get go. It was like a perfect eater, and he's had it and hasn't eaten from it yet. Um, so it's just it's, you just never know. I mean, I, that was the last thing I would think they would never wouldn't eat um, after eat. being shipped. But yeah, I'm sure he'll get it to eat. Has he but. tried? Has he tried like scenting? You know, scenting it. No, I don't think so, but um, he feeds during a day, which might be an yeah. a- the issue, and I Maybe. feed at night. He has lights in his cages. I don't have lights in my cages at all, so I don't yeah. know. Mm-hmm. So is it a sub-adult, sub-adult animal? Yeah, it's two, two years old. Okay. Eh, it'll, yeah. you, you know, it'll it'll come back around. Two, two year old shit. Sure. Yep. That would uh, wouldn't bother me if it didn't eat for months. Right, right, right. Yeah, it goes back to that that female I bought from Jason Stevens. It didn't eat for nine months, and it didn't wow. scare me because it was always healthy looking. Like it never looked looked like it was um, not healthy. So yeah, I was just patient, and that's it. You well, have to have patience. We're uh, we're at our two hour mark, which is for us old guys a pretty hard stop. Um, I know we did want to, uh, you know, recently, you know, we've been asking our guests, what do you think about this, the current uh, green tree market, uh, Tommy? What I mean, I, it doesn't take a genius to realize that it's pretty much on fire. But what do you? What do you think has been the cause of that? And do you think it's going to continue into the foreseeable future? Well, I mean, it's just insane what's going on right now. The prices have gotten out of control. And, I mean, it's just basically supply and demand. It's not enough people are are, um, hatching out babies. But it seems like this year – for some reason, this year it seems like it turned around. Seems like I said earlier, it seems like a lot of people are having success. So it's going to be interesting to see what 
happens in the next couple of years as far as pricing goes. So I think it's going to, it will always stay steady because there's not enough people breeding these things successfully. As far as getting the prices that are going right now, I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? And it depends on, I guess it depends on what you're breeding too. So if you're, I mean, you're breeding localities or um, designers, it all depends. But I think there's always going to be a demand for designers and blue lines and calicos. I don't think that that will, will change, but. We'll yeah, I kind of uh, judge, I kind of judge stuff on, you know, what's available to the mass public. And when I say that, I mean, what's available on Morph Market, which is now the leading um, uh, platform to buy and sell uh, reptiles is, is Morph Market. And if you yeah. go on Morph Market, and I did today, I think there's two designer animals available. You know, two. One of them is a from from who? Is a, well, one of them's a, a, a not a very attractive looking animal from from Nerd, <laughs> and the other one I can't even remember. But it's a very, I would say, a very moderate to. to to not not anything super crazy. Uh, everything yeah. else though sold, and I see very few platforms or advertisements for uh, for these animals. Still, they're all they all tend to be sold um, just through the network that we're familiar with, right? Which is like who you know, yeah. and if you're lucky right. enough to get be online when somebody posts a clutch and you know, you inquire and you make a serious inquire and a deal's done or whatever. So, yeah, I think it's, the, the I think it's, from, it's super, super strong. The ones from nerd or I didn't even know they, they bred, um, conchos for one, but were they expensive or what do you familiar with the lineage? Or was it just locality mixes? Um, it said designer. And to be honest, I can't remember. Not yeah. that that means anything. Uh, but no, I, I, I don't even remember the lineage, uh, and it may not have been designer. You know what? It may have just been what they were promoting as captive bread. Yeah. yeah. Everything else, everything else on morph market, they're all, um, imports or, uh, you know, locality types where with no lineage, you know, they're, they're all imports for farm babies or whatever you want to call them. I mean, me personally, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not successful enough to, um, I mean, people, I, there's, th these things were sold before I even had some out just from yeah. people that I know and, um, they knew I, what pairing yeah. I had. So it, yeah. it's yeah. crazy, man. Yeah. And buddy, I think that's probably your experience as well still, right? Yeah. I mean, people just reach out, they see stuff and they just reach out and say, you know, if you're going to sell any animals, just let me know. And that's normally what I do. I, um, you know, I don't, I don't do a wait list or anything like that, but I do honor folks that reach out to me and say, you know, Hey, if you have a baby available from this clutch, I'd be interested in one. And I, I, I do do that. And, um, 
you know, I really haven't had, you know, don't have to advertise that much. Um, but I do think that with a lot of the sales being kind of done by people in, in the manner where they reach out directly to the, bre- to the breeder, I think there's a large portion, large portion of the, the people who are kind of new to keeping green tree pythons that don't really know that that's kind of, that's the way to, to get a green tree python. So I feel like they may, they themselves, maybe missing out on some opportunities that they may not be aware of. Um, so I, I was actually listening to one of the NPR's uh, shows. They've been doing a lot of Condro episodes lately. And um, yeah, I think have. it might have been Mark Hedger was on the um, – and they were they, just listening to Eric and Owen talk about um, a couple of things about Condros, but probably the most uh, pertinent uh, topic was – they they kind of their their impression is that the chondro market is going to wind up like the blackhead python market where it's um you know and if you if you know much about blackheads you know they they share a lot of the same woes we do there's a lot of um there's not there's there's a lot of demand not a lot of babies um the babies are hard to establish the eggs are difficult to hatch um, and you know, you guys look at the prices of blackheads. They they seem they're they're of the opinion that uh, green tree pythons are going to go that way of of the blackhead pyth of the you know similarly of the blackhead python with pricing and availability. Um, so the, the, it's very interesting uh, how they drew those two parallels. But when I actually did a little research and looked at it because I don't keep blackheads, I didn't know that. Um, a lot of blackhead pythons are assist-fed as babies or force-fed. Um, the eggs are really difficult to hatch with moisture. Um, they apparently have the same fate with, like, a condor egg. If it's mismanaged with moisture, the eggs don't don't recover, like maybe like a diamond python would or a jungle carpet. Um, so it's, uh, looking at that after they made those statements, it's very interesting parallel. And I, I do see the higher-end market right now being right there with the blackhead market. I don't see the locality stuff being there, but we don't know what's going to continue to come out of Indonesia and what quality it's going that's to be. Yeah. Um, that's and so, yep. and that's so that's the other thing. Yeah. So we don't know, like it could be, you know, in a couple of years you could be like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, farm bed, Biak, 1500 bucks, you know, captive bred, born in Biak, red baby, 2000 bucks. Right. Um, it could yeah. very well happen. It could very well happen. Um, and which, you know, unfortunately would put a lot of people out of the price range for, for a chondro, at least a chondro that, you know, that, that they're most likely going to su- succeed with. Um, so it, it's, you know, definitely a on one situation. If you've got the chondros and, uh, you know, it, you, it, it's a good good time to be have, to have baby chondros available for sale. Yeah. But at the other point, too, if you're looking for entry-level animals, it's uh, not really a great situation unless you're willing to make that. You know, a lot of people don't want to make that purchase of over $1,000 for the first chondro. Um, yeah. So it's definitely, you know, it's definitely a, a give-and-take situation. It's good on one side, but on the other side it's not. Um, but I really, when they when they brought up that parallel between that and blackheads and not knowing much about blackheads and just doing a little bit of research. Um, I definitely see maybe their prediction coming true. 
Mm. I mean, I mean, can can you even get a a captive a U.S. captive red conjo for under two thousand dollars anymore? Red neo. I mean, I, I you'd be hard no, to trust not red. One, right? Not yeah. red, yellow. You can yellow. You can still get. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can, you can get a yellow baby for twelve hundred bucks, pretty reliably. I mean, still, I mean, that's so expensive. Like back, back when we started out in this, I mean, you can get a yellow baby for captive bred for a couple hundred bucks, three hundred bucks, four hundred bucks. It's just, right. it's just. Yeah, I routinely sell babies for three hundred bucks. Yellow babies. Wow, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I and I can just speak, um, you know, because I'm, I don't, uh, Tommy, I don't know if you do other species and stuff like that, but I can tell you that eat like the ball python market in the last five years, you know, those prices have gone through the roof as well. Uh, I, I just yeah. think reptiles in general, you know, for, for whatever reason, a lot of them, you know, have, have gone up in price. And I'll tell you in the ball python, it isn't because, uh, the availability isn't there. There's more being produced every year than ever. I mean, uh, on a, right. on a crazy scale, you know, but it's just that more people want them and more, and people want more of them that has kept that market yeah. uh, going. So, yeah, I think it's just a combination. All the things have just kind of lined up for the green tree, um, you know, market, uh, Buddy mentioned something about lack of availability of, of reliable imports coming into the country. I, I don't think there's any doubt that right. farm-bred babies and imports, the availability to the importers is way down. Uh, so, so that's going to push the prices up. I think NIDO decimated a lot of green, a lot of captive-bred green trees in this country in the last decade. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, a lot of a lot of reasons for uh, low low production, at, but at the same time, increasing demand. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you you remember Bill, but I actually did keep all. So this is funny story. So the first couple of times I attempted to breed green trees was a disaster, and I'm like, oh my god, this is a nightmare. So I I actually bought a little small colony of ball pythons and um, started breeding them. And I reached out to you yeah. to, I found I had a successful uh, breeding and had some eggs and reached out to you to see how you incubated your ball pythons compared to green tree pythons. Okay. I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just messaged you on Facebook. Did it, did it work out? So that because I wasn't <laughs> sure, like a lot of ball python breeders don't use the no substrate method, and um, no, they don't. And I was going to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I I, I get, tell get your opinion on it. I tell people all the time how much I've learned from from uh, breeding and producing and hatching ball pythons that. I learned so much from doing that that it made it made my green tree endeavor a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I guess easier, you know. Yeah, because yeah. I've never bred snakes before. I bought the my original colony of green trees, and I was going to try and breed. That's and crazy. Yeah, first yeah first two attempts were a disaster. 
And they had <laughs> the first clutch was like 18 eggs, and they all burned and crashed in like three days. <laughs> and the second <laughs> second time, I had 19 <laughs> eggs and only three hats. So I was like, holy shit, this is terrible. So I was like, oh, I'm going to buy some brutal, more pythons. <laughs> and, yeah, so I and, bought and both pythons, and I put them together. You know, call them. They do, didn't do anything, and they just <laughs> they bred. They, had just, they went crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's awesome, man. All right, gentlemen, we're over our hard two hours. Yeah, you guys gotta gotta get a bed. Hell yeah, yes, we're old. I mean, shit. <laughs> what are you eight, we're we're almost the same age. <laughs> yeah, we're all old. We are. Yeah. Old guys talking about snakes, just what people want to hear. <laughs> I remember yeah. in my day. I'm sure. When I wanted a chondro, sure I had to walk uphill to Trooper Walsh's house. <laughs> in 12 inches of snow. With no shoes. Uh, Well, it has been a great two hours, guys. I've enjoyed it a lot. Yes. Awesome show. Yeah, for sure. Tommy, thanks for joining us. Um, Great to meet you online, Um, hopefully one day in person. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a lot of good information. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, yeah, a lot thanks of good having so, me. So let me ask you this, Tommy: if, if if someone wants to to buy a chondro from you, <laughs> what's the best way to get a hold of you? I guess just message me on Facebook or um, Instagram. Um, it's Gadumi Exotics, G A D U M I. Yeah, just message me, and I usually respond um, pretty quickly. So. I just, unfortunately, I haven't had anything for sale for a while. I just like, like I said, they're pretty much gone before they're even asked. But um, I still have two pairings going, so hopefully I will have some for sale pretty soon. But we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, Wonderful. we'll start start sharing those start sharing those pairings on your uh, social media. Yeah, for sure, I will. Even if they're shitty pictures. (laughs) 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 All right. All right, Tommy. Tommy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good night. Keep in touch, man. You too. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bill, that that was a great episode. It was an awesome episode. We uh yeah. we got back to the basics, you know. We got back to the basics of just uh, you know, how do you keep these things? How do you breed these things? How do you, you know, establish neos? Just you know, back to the basics. Right. Correct. Yep. That's what people want to hear. They want to know how do you do it. Yeah. How do you do it? And and even after you've even after you've learned a thousand times how do you do it, you don't know how to do it until you do it. That's correct. That is correct. We, the more information you have, the more successful you can be. Yep, yep. 
information and then pick out uh, what sounds good to you and works best for you. Fantastic. All right, so what's next? All right, listen, you know, we I think we're uh, going to have to break break our old record of, of doing more than five shows in a year. I think so. We are on a roll. All right, well, you have right. your people contact my people. We'll get yes, an agenda. We'll figure it out. For the next show within the next 30 to 60 days. Sounds sounds like a great plan, Bill. All right. Have a great week, buddy. Yep. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Episode 31 with Thomas Budway. Have a good night. See you on the next one. In the books. Peace out. In the books. <laughs>